You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Welcome to a Tuesday edition of Locked On NBA, your daily NBA podcast. I'm Wes Goldberg, and I'm here with David Ramil and from the Washington Post, Ben Golliver. Dwight Howard could be on his way to a second stint with the Lakers, and Greg Popovich has a problem with plus-minus, but we'll start today with the rookie survey conducted by NBA.com and posted to the site Monday. And in the survey, the players were asked who among this season's rookies would go on to have the best career, and the answer was not the number one pick, Zion Williamson, but Cam Reddish, who was taken 10th overall by the Atlanta Hawks. Even more surprising, Reddish took 19% of the votes compared to just 5% for Zion. Ben, is it the one-and-done culture to blame? Is this a sign that these kids need to get their degrees? What's going on here? Now, these are fascinating results because I think if you threw this up to like the odds makers, it would have sort of been like Zion Williamson or the field as the answer to this question. I mean, remember back to draft season, he was the clear cut number one for months. Everyone was a distant second. Uh, and the talk about him was having the ceiling of a Hall of Famer kind of do everything type of guy. It's very strange that his uh, fellow players don't kind of see the, the same uh, level of optimism in Zion. So I have a couple theories. What are they worried about, guys? Are they worried about his health? Are they worried about his offensive fit or his position? Are they worried about his shooting? Or are they just jealous? Are they envious mm-hmm. of all the hype and the intention and possibly thinking that this guy's getting uh, you know, a little bit too much love? Now, it's, it's also interesting because I think Cam Reddish was a pretty highly regarded recruit kind of all the way through, right? And Zion maybe uh, came on a little bit late uh, to take over that number one spot. So it could also be a case where some of these guys are just remembering where guys uh, stacked up in high school or something along those lines. But very, very strange uh, results from the rookies. Uh, this is another good reason why we shouldn't let the players you know, vote on end-of-season awards or all-star selections or anything like that because I, I really feel like they make a mess out of it nine out of ten times. But I'm curious, uh, you know, David, what do you think? I mean, of those reasons I listed – what are the players uh, worried about getting in the way of Zion and being the best pl- uh, best player in this class? Well, I wonder if they consider his weight. Would that fit under the health category? I mean, maybe they don't see him necessarily being as regimented or dedicated. He's already had some minor injury issues at Duke. And, and maybe in conjunction, they, they have some perhaps legitimate concerns that he just might not be able to, to remain healthy over the course of his career. That if, if we're counting on him being a, a superlative player because of athleticism and explosiveness and those kinds of things tend to wane over the course of a career, maybe they just don't see him having any kind of long-term success. He could be an immediate impact player over the next couple of seasons, but eventually those numbers will start to dwindle unless he develops a legitimate jump shot that he can rely on. I I kind of think it might be the position thing because you look at the players who scored the highest among the rookies – Cam Reddish, 19%. John Morant, 16%. DeAndre Hunter, 11%. Those are your top three guys by a wide margin. And they're all either projecting as two-way guys, in in the case of Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter, or a dominant ball handler like John Morant. And we see, you know, in MVP voting and time after time, like the guys who are dominating all NBA teams and these and making all-star teams are either these two-way guys, a la Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, etc., or these ball-dominant guys like John Morant, who projects to be, you know, these Russell Westbrook, James Harden, ball-dominant point guards. And maybe that's why the players look at that. It's a traditional model that they can sort of base it on. That's the only thing I can really think of here. Or maybe no, it's an issue with the, the definition of best career, like we have an issue with most uh, or, or uh, most valuable player. Those, those are my guesses. 
Yeah, I think those guys that you mentioned, a lot of them are pretty easy to wrap your mind around, right? I mean, Cam Reddish, big NBA frame from, you know, pretty early in his life. DeAndre Hunter, same deal. John Moran, he looks like kind of a a textbook playmaking point guard, modern point guard. Uh, You don't have to do a ton of projection if you're a fellow rookie to see how those guys would succeed. Uh, I think a lot of times when the players vote on these things, they tend to favor talented scorers uh, over almost everything else. So I was actually surprised to see uh, you know, a guy like DeAndre Hunter getting so much love uh, or, you know, a guy like R.J. Barrett, maybe not ranking in the top three. Like if I had to guess what, uh, you know, before this was uh, released, I would have guessed they would have treated Zion a lot more friendly. Uh, they would have given John Moran a lot of love and they would have defaulted to R.J. Barrett as sort of like the next big thing in this draft. So they were all over the map here. I'm not sure how much we should really be parsing it, but uh, I don't see it playing out the way that they think it will play out. I think they're drastically underrating Zion Williamson. The interesting thing is that Zion and his teammate, Jackson Hayes, both scored 5%. I mean, what rookies are they polling? They said in the, it's all the rookies. I don't, how would Jackson Hayes get as many votes as Zion Williamson? That to me just seems crazy, David. Yeah, I don't understand that at all. I mean, I'm trying to is think of it Is this just an issue of... with polling in general, as we've seen over the years? <laughs> well, I mean, there, there's never going to be a right answer to that. I, I, you know, I was curious... And, and the NBA.com thing, it was interesting how they pointed out how in the past when they when they looked at who was going to win the Rookie of the Year, the last time they got it right was in 2009 with Kevin Gar- uh, with Kevin Durant, and, and since then they haven't gotten it right once. So there's no way of really projecting. It's all about fit. It's all about a player having a, an incredible breakout season, and, and then who knows how that'll pan out. I mean, it's interesting. The polling situation just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but I guess you were kind of curious, especially now in the dog days of summer, to hear what rookies might have to think about each other, but maybe that just gives them extra incentive as they go into training camp. I'm not sure. Yeah, one one quick thing on that. If you go back and look at the history of the winners in this category, you know, guys like Anthony Davis, John Wall, Blake Griffin, Kevin Durant, they all did win, uh, you know, this category in previous years. And those were all pretty much kind of like slam dunk, number one pick type guys. So it's really interesting to me that Zion, who was this slam dunk number one guy, just didn't sort of fall into that same category with those players. And that's why I wonder if it if it does wind up being an element of, of jealousy or envy. I mean, being there at the pre-draft stuff in New York, just seeing how much attention there was for Zion, like he was in a class by himself and everybody else was sort of a second, you know, an afterthought. Uh, and it's the same deal uh, when you're looking on Twitter or even like the rookie photo shoots or any of this stuff, right? It's like Zion is the lead guy. He gets all of the attention. All of Summer League, the conversation was about Zion. As soon as he gets injured, it's like, okay, Summer League's over, right? And I guess that would probably get a, a pretty annoying. I'm trying to put myself in uh, the position of, of one of these players. I, mean, I mean, but it, it, it would get tiresome. It might be a situation where they say, obviously, I mean, 35% of these rookies said that Zion would win Rookie of the Year, but it almost might be this backhanded compliment of, well, you're not going to have the best career, but enjoy the spotlight while you have it. Maybe that's where the jealousy sort of manifests itself. Uh, well, maybe it's like I said earlier. Maybe maybe they do have concerns that it'll have an injury plague career. It's possible. Uh, Tyler Hero, rated best shooter. How about that, David? Happy about that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> but again, if you're looking at, at, at Cam Reddish and saying, you know, he has a long frame, he has the potential to be a long-range scorer, but he's still not even the best shooter in the draft class. I mean, what 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 is the criteria here? Yeah. None of it seems to make sense. It's kind of like a couple of weeks ago when they had the all all decade teams listed there, mm-hmm. and we were we had the same another similar show where we were kind of responding to it and looking at the uh, at the criteria, and we couldn't decipher it one way or the other. It's easy content. Hero should have been higher up, I think, in best career. Let's take a break. Coming up next, are the Lakers making a big mistake? The gamble on Dwight Howard. You're listening to Locked On NBA. 
Fantasy football players, make sure you listen to Vinny Iyer and Locked On Fantasy Football. With over 20 years covering fantasy football, Vinny gives you an edge that you're not going to get anywhere else. Vinny is a rising star in fantasy football analysis, and you'll want to get on this show now before everyone else does. It's Locked On Fantasy Football on the Locked On Podcast Network. With DeMarcus Cousins suffering an apparent ACL injury, the Lakers need a center and could turn to Dwight Howard to play alongside Anthony Davis. David, do you think Dwight is a good fit for the Lakers? You know, I don't think they're going to be asking too much of him. And I kind of, I do like the fit, to be honest with you. I I don't know if anybody else seems to think the the same, but to me, he's at that right point where he's uh, an accomplished player, still trying to prove himself. And I realize that now he's, he's burned his way through so many different teams and I think with the overpowering ego uh, of LeBron James and, of course, Anthony Davis, that they can keep him in check. And I think he won't be as much of a problem in that locker room. You know, we've seen LeBron uh, control those Heat teams up close, and, and he always seemed to have a pretty tight rein on making sure that everybody was focused on one singular goal, and that's to, to win a championship. And, and I think that'll still be the case there. So I'm curious to see how it plays out. I, I think even now at this point, I think Dwight has to realize that he's no longer the player he once was. And so because he's going to have such a small role, it'll be easier for him to just kind of focus on that same goal, get aligned with everybody else and, and contribute in whatever way he can. I mean, he's not going to be the same player he once was, but even a couple seasons ago before that most recent back injury, he did play 81 games, started 81 games for the Charlotte Hornets. So I mean, he could be healthy. He could be a solid contributor. I, I like the fit. What do you What do you guys think? I'm pretty down on Dwight in general. I mean, I understand what you're saying for sure. And he's saying all the right things. I mean, he had a big publicity he's tour. He's always said the right things, it, though, right? And, I mean, he's been saying the right things for five seasons. Right, now. yeah. He says the right things. And then, you know, mysteriously, his coaches and GMs wind up getting fired at the end of the season once they bring him in, right? <laughs> I think one of the most fascinating uh, little tidbits that I uh, came across over the last couple of days is that Dwight Howard has only advanced in the playoffs once Uh, since basically 2010, right? So, you know, at the peak of that Orlando run, since then, he's only advanced once. It was with the Houston Rockets and James Harden during their one, like, pretty successful season. Otherwise, it's all been lottery trips or first rounds and out, and then obviously the the health issues, uh, you know, last year. So to me, if you're the Lakers and your primary goal is, like, how are we going to build this team that's really ready for playoff success – um, I'm not sure Dwight Howard's really going to be a part of it. We actually saw, you know, at times, even during his Atlanta career, where he was getting benched in the postseason uh, or, or you're really having his minutes cut. And that was uh, multiple years ago, uh, you know, because he wasn't really able to impact games. Now, I realize it's a tricky time of year to add a, a center who's capable of impacting playoff games. But to me, the other baggage that Dwight Howard brings, all the questions, uh, you know, the, the distractions, the media attention and all of that, like to me, that's a pretty high, you know, barrier, and I would only be doing that. I would only be taking on those kinds of risks if if I was confident he could be a major player in a playoff rotation. And right now, I just don't think he is. So for that reason, I would explore other opportunities, whether it's uh, you know Joakim Noah, uh, you know whether it's trying to you know peel off one of the centers that uh, Phoenix has kind of collected here over the summer, uh, whether it's you know just waiting till the trade deadline and trying to you know grab a piece that way or trying to you know remake what they did with T- Tyson Chandler and that acquisition last year. Uh, I might be looking uh, for that approach as opposed to bringing in the, the Dwight Howard experience. And, you know, the Lakers fans, too, by the way, they haven't forgotten about Dwight, right? I mean, that did not go well for them at all. I don't think he would be welcomed back with open arms. And I just think it would be a dicey, uh, you know, a level of uh, just uncertainty and chaos that this team really doesn't need. I mean, looking at some of these other free agents who are available, you mentioned Joakim Noah. We're talking about Greg Monroe, Kenneth Fareed. 
Andrew Bogut, Zaza Pachulia, solid players, all kind of in their own different ways to kind of bring what they bring, and you know what to expect, whereas with Dwight Howard, you don't really know what to expect, to your point. But I'm with David. I actually think this pickup makes sense for the Lakers, not only because if they do sign him, presumably it would be something at the minimum or close to the minimum based on where they are at their salary cap, so they could just cut him if it doesn't work out and go after one of these other guys. But if you're the Lakers... You really need to find somebody to sop up some of these minutes at center because we know that Anthony Davis does not want to play center. And the only center currently on the roster is JaVale McGee. And between JaVale McGee and all those other available free agents I just listed off, none of them are really expected to give you even 20 minutes per game. The one thing Dwight Howard can give you over his career is he could play a lot of minutes. I mean, David, you mentioned that that season in Charlotte where he played 81 games. He played 30 minutes a game. Even in those like nine games before his butt injury last year, he was playing almost 26 minutes per game, and that was a low for his whole career. I mean, he's typically at 30 minutes plus per game. And if you're trying to keep Anthony Davis happy in a contract year, I think the idea here is, all right, Dwight Howard, you play 25 to 32 minutes at center a night, and we'll get Anthony, we'll get lineups at end of games and end of halves where we where we get Anthony Davis to five, but for the most part. You'll take the beating. You'll go out, get 12 or 13 rebounds a game. That's all we really need from you. And then by the time the postseason rolls around, maybe by then you've been able to convince, hopefully, I guess, Anthony Davis that, hey, (laughs) maybe Dwight Howard shouldn't be playing in a playoff setting. We need you at center, and these are our best lineups. Let's go out and win a championship now. You don't have to do it for all 82 games, but let's let's get you at center for the postseason. To me, that makes sense. Now, I will... The big caveat for all of that is Dwight has to buy into that and it has to work out. That, of course, is the caveat. But, like, theoretically, I get it, you know? Ben, I'm, I'm curious. Do you really think that on a team of LeBron and Anthony Davis and, and the way, you know, LeBron has always run those teams and, and managed a locker room that even a personality like Dwight would wind up being a distraction? I know the lights are a little bit brighter. There's a lot more attention in Los Angeles with what's going on with the Clippers, et cetera. But at the same time, do you, do you think even now at this point in his career that Dwight will still manage to find a way to be a distraction for this team? Uh, I would say yes. I'm not necessarily putting that all on Dwight, though. I mean, first of all, I've got scars from last year still, okay? I mean, that was a pretty ugly situation, the way it fell apart. I mean, remember, LeBron didn't even get to the end of the season. And so if we're just assuming that they're going to have a good locker room because most LeBron teams have been able to kind of weather those bumps and bruises in the past, I think that could be a false assumption. I mean, the Lakers were a long way from a playoff team last year. Uh, They've got Mm -hmm. a lot of guys who are coming in who always have big expectations playing for the Lakers who are no longer the same guys that they were three or four years ago. That's going to create, you know, potentially the, the, the possibility of finger pointing. Throw on top of it, you've got poor Frank Vogel. I mean, like if you're Frank Vogel, how many things do you need to juggle here? You know, you've got to deal with the LeBron factor, establishing a relationship, trust, uh, getting him on your side, uh, you know, managing the public relations uh, side of that. I mean, that's a real deal. We, we heard it from David Griffin. We've heard it from other people in the past. You've got to deal with that. You've got to figure out how to turn Anthony Davis into an MVP candidate. You've got to find some sort of a bench uh, through a whole bunch of new faces that don't really have established camaraderie. And now you're throwing on the Dwight Howard experience. And one thing that we've heard about Dwight, and you mentioned this earlier, like, look, he says all the right things. He's done that, right? 
But when push comes to shove, he still wants the touches. He still wants the the ball down on the low block. He's willing to play the game the right way, defensive rebounding uh, up to a certain point. Uh, but he's still human, and he still has memories of being that number one option who was you know, guiding a team like the Orlando Magic to the finals. That never goes away for good, and I'm just not convinced he would be able to, to strike the right balance. Look, it wouldn't surprise me if the Lakers did this, by the way. Uh, I think that they're at a point here pretty early where it's, it's kind of desperation. I mean, they were really counting on DeMarcus Cousins to give them big minutes and to play a big role for them, uh, and they have a pretty big uh, hole at center right now um, you know, outside of JaVale McGee. Uh, but, uh, you know, to me, I, I just think it's just one too many things for, uh, you know, one too many uncertainties or, uh, you know, elements of uh, confusion to introduce into the mix. I, I just, to me, the risks outweigh the reward. For better or worse, this Lakers team over the last couple of years has not shied away from personalities. I mean, David, who eats more junk food on a daily basis, Dwight Howard or Michael Beasley? Ooh, uh, yeah, I'd still have to give Dwight a nod on that one. Let's take a break here. Coming up next is Greg Popovich, right about plus minus. You're listening to Locked On NBA. Make sure to check out the revamped Locked On NFL show with expert analysis from former NFL scout Matt Williamson and host Brian Peacock. Locked On NFL is your daily podcast on all things NFL. Subscribe to Locked On NFL wherever you get podcasts. Greg Popovich recently took an opportunity to bash the plus-minus column on the the box score printout after a recent exhibition game for Team USA. And, of course, that sent basketball Twitter into a frenzy. Ben, you wrote about this for the Washington Post this week. Give us your elevator pitch defending plus-minus. Well, just real quick, it was on the post-up weekly uh, newsletter that I put together. It was hilarious, Wes. I mean, uh, Greg Popovich has asked for his favorite stat and in very like traditional Greg Popovich fashion, he just starts to get grumpy. And he's like, "No, you know what? I'm going to give you my least favorite stat." Uh, and he and he basically just you know singled out just like individual game plus minus as being uh, you know just misrepresentative of a player's impact. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. What bothered me though well, wait, is how did everybody you, did you ask that question? What his favorite stat is? Because that's a that is a ballsy question to ask Greg Popovich in a press conference setting. No, I did not. Uh, okay. And, you know, there's there's a whole different media element that, that comes around USA Basketball. I think Bob, uh, Popovich was having fun with it a little bit. But uh, I would just say that he's got a point on the noise that's kind of baked into a single game plus minus. But I think that everybody on the Internet, including some players like Isaiah Thomas, who retweeted the clip, they got really excited and wanted to just kind of say, you know what, plus minus is worthless. Why do we even look at it? And to me, there's a lot of value to plus minus. I look at two major examples. First of all, when you look at ESPN's version of real plus minus, where they try to adjust things to take into account the quality of your teammates and your opponents, the top five guys by real plus minus last season were the top five MVP uh, finishers and vote getters in last year's MVP rating. So that metric Uh, which I think is put together very intelligently by people who really understand basketball, almost perfectly mirrors what, you know, the intelligentsia thinks about who were the most important and valuable players uh, in the league last season. That should count for a lot. And to me, that does have a lot of value. The other thing I would do to, uh, you know, defend plus minus is once you start to expand the scale, right, over the course of an entire season, uh, like I just mentioned with real plus minus, or even over the course of multiple seasons, it can really tell a different story about players. Now, like Steph Curry, for example, when you look at his last five seasons, if you just look at points, rebounds, and assists, he's clearly an all-star, but you would think, okay, guys like Russell Westbrook, guys like James Harden, those are actually better players, right? They've got, uh, you know, higher volume stats, 
And that's sort of the traditional way to judge people. But if you look at plus minus, I mean, Steph Curry has basically been a basketball god since 2014 by plus minus. Year after year after year after year, his teams have been incredible, kind of blowing the doors off people. When he's on the court, the Warriors are awesome. When he's off the court, they're definitely worse. And I think that that's a really important part of his legacy, because if you never looked at plus minus and you were just judging Steph, you'd say, oh, well, maybe you'd get it wrong. Maybe you'd say, oh, he's only a shooter. Or maybe you'd say, oh, you know what? Uh, It was the Warriors super team that, you know, it was all their talent that made them go. And you might diminish Steph's role in it. Or you might even say, you know what? The Warriors were really good, but they weren't one of the greatest teams of all time. But when you compare plus minus or point differential or these kinds of metrics, you can see not only are the Warriors, you know, one of the greatest teams ever at their peak, but Curry deserves to be in some of the conversations of, you know, like the best player of the decade or one of the most dominant guys from his generation. And I think that's a more accurate way to talk about a big time player like that. So to me, everyone who was racing to just throw plus minus into the trash can because Greg Popovich happened to mention it in kind of a negative fashion, uh, they were going way too far. They were running the wrong direction. I'm just trying to picture the decor in the uh, blog boy basement in which Ben Golliver currently resides because, you know, <laughs> you've never played the game, so you really don't know what you're talking hey, about. Hey, 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 come on now. <laughs> David, what's your least favorite What's your least favorite stat, Dan? Oh, they're they're all equally awesome to me. I, I don't have a least favorite stat, to be honest. You know my answer to that. You know my answer to this question. It's my own question. I don't, actually. Rebounding. I, don't, actually. I think rebounds are oh. a loser stat. Ooh, yeah. rebounds are a loser stats. People, yeah. team, teams that talk about how much they rebound don't win a whole bunch of games, um, other than the Milwaukee Bucks. But the Toronto, the Toronto Raptors were 17th in rebounding last year. I don't care about rebounding. That's just the thing. You, if you have to try that hard, maybe you're not all that talented. Um, De'Aaron Fox recently withdrew from Team USA, David, and, and you've got some opinions. On, uh, you're a little worried about this, right? Because he was drawing rave reviews after camp. We talked about this on last week's shows, uh, on last week's show, but with Ben. Um, but you're worried about Team USA. I, I am. I mean, specifically, Blogboy Ben, you know, pointed out that De'Aaron Fox and PJ Tucker would be the unheralded heroes of this team, the guys that could, you know, show some significant growth, who could make all the blue collar, you know, necessary plays to, to help winning, etc. Now they're both gone, and, and we saw in that most recent game against the Spanish national team that the USA squad really did struggle. And to me, I understand, look, that game was, you know, a friendly, it was fairly meaningless. And for a lot of people looking at this USA squad, I think they're optimistic that, you know, that's going to translate that eventually the talent on the USA group will will kind of, you know, show up and, and uh, you know, lead them to some pretty easy wins. I don't doubt that they'll face some inferior competition and that they will have some misleading, I think, victories over some of these inferior teams. But when they go up against the tougher squads, regardless of how deep that talent is, I I think that there will be enough blood in the water there where the USA team will be vulnerable. And I think other groups around, other teams around that world will kind of see an opportunity there to, uh, 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 you know, upset the USA squad. And uh, to me, you know, we also talked about the fact beforehand, before we even started recording, that, of course, some of the more talented players in the field I think three of the top four represent other countries, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Nikola Jokic, etc. So, I mean, not even the top tier talent in the tournament is from the USA team for the most part. Uh, you know, I think their depth is an issue. They're still trying to find a way to kind of congeal as a group. There's just too many holes here. And, and I don't see I don't see them kind of improving on the way, to be honest with you. You know, you got to go in there 
you have to start playing these games and, and there's not much opportunity for you to kind of make adjustments on the fly. And I'm not sure that there's enough talent on this on this, tr- on this group right now to make those adjustments in the necessary amount of time. Wait, so would you, if, if you had to bet on USA or the field, you would bet on... I'm betting on the field, to be honest with you. I don't think they win gold. To me. I think they'll I think they'll medal. I just don't think they'll win gold. Ben, I think ben. it's a totally fair uh, take. I think it's a really fair concern. The, the P.J. Tucker and De'Aaron Fox uh, withdrawals were very strange and, and very unexpected, kind of late-breaking, especially the Fox one. Uh, you know, he didn't play too much. Uh, I think he played like a team low six minutes in the in the uh, That's right. exhibition again against Spain. I think that probably bothered him a little bit. He was probably wondering like, hey, why aren't you just going to announce that I'm on this team? Why do I have to fly to Australia without knowing if I'm officially making the cut or not? Uh, it was kind of a weird Popovich thing. It almost seemed like he was testing his players a little bit to, to see if he could weed anybody out. But I think that was a mistake because they let a really good player go home. They could use his ball handling, his speed, his ability to you know pressure ball handlers as well. Uh, you know, to me, the biggest concern with Team USA, though, it's not the depth factor; it's the who steps up and the alpha dog role factor. If if right. games get tight or the shots aren't going in, uh, I think they're really playing a system based offense, which is fine. But there could come situations where other teams are throwing zones on them. Guys are just having a cold night where they really need that shot creation off the dribble. And I think it's going to put a lot of pressure on Donovan Mitchell to kind of fill that uh, void for them. And we'll see if he can do it. And look, I mean, going into a tournament where it's like one and done and having the weight of the world on Donovan Mitchell's shoulder as that lead creator or Kemba Walker's shoulders uh, as that lead playmaker, it does make me, uh, you know, a little bit nervous on their behalf. And we'll see if they can do it. I would probably still bet on them to win gold here. Um, you know, I think there's only a few teams that are really capable of challenging them. There's always the possibility that those teams kind of knock each other out. So they really only have one or two tough games. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be easy sledding. I mean, Donovan Mitchell has done it. He, he did it his rookie year where he was able to knock out a team. Um, but he's kind of the, the obvious bet. But you look around this team and, you know, I remember the years where the teams were. I mean, re- remember when the, the Kobe LeBron squad went out there and Kobe sort of took over. Um, they don't really have that person, that person with NBA or even World Cup or, or Olympic play experience that knows how to take over in these settings. And it'll be really interesting to see how this team grows. Even before De'Aaron Fox, I think that was a concern. So um, I think I'm with Ben. I would still take Team USA, but maybe I'm just a homer. I don't know. Um, but it'll give him a real opportunity to some of these guys to show out and, and, and step up. That's it for today. Remember to listen to and subscribe to new and archived episodes of Locked on NBA on Himalaya as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you're on iTunes, please leave us a review. And thanks for listening.